Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and with me is Aaron Miller. We will kick off as usual with our news roundup. We have three topics for you there. Uh, The first relates to Yahoo and a couple of different news items around Yahoo this week. Uh, The second will be about live video and uh, we have both uh, Facebook and Twitter angles on that topic. Um, And then the third one will be about mobile payments. And and again, we have two different news items that kind of wrap into that one related to MasterCard and Apple Pay and the second relating to Google's new hands-free payment service that they've started trialing in the Bay Area this week. Um, So that will be our news roundup at the beginning and uh, that will take us through the first few minutes of the the episode. We'll then move into our uh, main topic, which is our question of the week. And uh, this week we're doing a deep dive into some of the specifics around the um, Apple case in New York. Um, so there's been a lot of emphasis around this Apple FBI case in California. There was, though, another case in New York that was decided uh, this week uh, in which uh, there was a, a judgment uh, from Judge Orenstein in which he appeared to kind of rebuff a lot of the arguments that the uh, the FBI will be relying on in California. And so uh, Aaron, who is a lawyer by training, will be talking us through the significance of that uh, court order, um, both in terms of what it says about that specific case, but also the implications for the the, uh, the case in California. And then our final topic will be a discussion of the new uh, over-the-top video services that AT&T announced this week under the DirecTV brand. So um, we'll, we'll talk through that, the implications of that, and some of the ins and outs of that. And then we'll wrap up, as usual, with our weekly pick in which I'll have a recommendation, a movie recommendation specifically, this week. So uh, let's kick off with the news roundup. The two uh, news items around Yahoo, one was confirmation that Verizon seems to be emerging as one of the front runners for buying the sort of uh, core Yahoo business Uh, which now seems to be officially up for sale. The other was that in Yahoo's 10K, they indicated they might further write down the Tumblr asset over time. They already wrote it down along with a bunch of other assets this past quarter, but there was a a sort of explicit indication that they may have to do a further write down on Tumblr. Aaron, what was your reaction to to these news items this week? Well, it did make me sad for Marissa Meyer. I I mean, you know, I, I, I was optimistic when she took over at Yahoo. It's only been since the time she started there that I think the the real challenge of that has become more crystallized as to why Yahoo's in a bad place. And we've talked about this idea before in previous episodes about how this is very much a winner-takes-all business and Yahoo's good but not best and a lot of different things. Um, the Verizon acquisition is the one that is most curious to me um, because I, I have a hard time understanding exactly what Verizon wants out of it. Um, it yeah, that, doesn't that seem one's like an interesting one. Yeah, the, the reason it does fit is that AOL and Yahoo had talked quite a bit uh, about merging in the past. And, of course, Verizon's already bought AOL um, as part of a strategy to build a cross-platform advertising business. Um, so AOL had a lot of good ad tech. Uh, but obviously also had a lot of ad platforms uh, where advertising can be served up. And obviously Verizon with uh, its internet and TV assets has other places where uh, advertising can land as well. And so they've made a big investment in that already. It's part of their kind of diversification strategy beyond the traditional consumer and business telecom services. And so the Yahoo business, I think, fits in with that. It's more ad tech, obviously, uh, provides a lot more content uh, against which you can serve up advertising, gives you economies of scale around both of those things, gives you some opportunities to drive synergies by combining the sales teams and, and the ad platforms and so on around all of that. So I think 
uh, that's the reason why it makes sense. And this is why I felt Verizon was one of the stronger kind of candidates to buy Yahoo for the last little while here. It's still not an obvious purchase for them. I mean, you get tons of content assets that, you know, have been struggling and, and presumably will continue to do so, um, you know, under Verizon. And I think any acquirer will be glad for the cuts that Yahoo's made over the last few months uh, because some of the tough decisions will have been made before they take over. But, you know, there's still a lot of stuff there that it's not as obvious kind of where it fits within Verizon. Yeah, the other thing I thought was interesting, and we chatted about this a little bit beforehand, um, you know, the indicator that they may have to do more of a write-down on Tumblr, I, I think is a lock that is going to happen. I don't see why you would warn about this maybe coming down the road um, if you didn't have a pretty good, you know, certainty. Because the thing about write-downs is they're not compulsory. I mean, you right. know, when you choose to write down is pretty flexible. And so mm -hmm. for them to warn, hey, we may have to further write down Tumblr's value into the future, I mean, that's essentially saying, unless there's a surprise, we're going to be doing this. Right, right. Yeah, no, that, and that, that seems like a, a pretty bad indictment of, of, you know, Yahoo's biggest acquisition under Marissa Meyer, which was Tumblr, which seems to have largely been a failure from both, you know, a performance perspective and from a, an integration perspective where they've basically unwound the only piece of integration that they had going um, with the advertising sales team. So, yeah, really disappointing overall. It'd be interesting to see what happens to that asset if the rest of Yahoo does get sold to Verizon or someone else. Let's move on to this live video topic then. And again, the, the two news items that are kind of our hook here are um, Twitter um, released its 10K filing this week as well. And in it, they kind of reiterated that live is their big focus going forward and live streaming video is a big component of that. Obviously, they've had Periscope for a while now, um, but you know they really want to build that more into the core Twitter experience rather than having it be a sort of standalone app. And then the other aspect of this is that Facebook seems to be doubling down on live video as well. Uh, and so you know you had a, an all the hands meeting at Facebook in which Mark Zuckerberg expressed a lot of excitement around this topic. Sheryl Sandberg's apparently out in Hollywood this week uh, trying to sign deals with content owners and producers to create content for the live video feed. Uh, and then the newsfeed itself is going to start incorporating live video as it happens near the top uh, when it is indeed live. And, you know, most of what are, the live video, quote unquote, that I've seen on Facebook has been after the fact. And so they're going to start tweaking that so that it, if there's something going on from somebody that you follow or one of your friends follows, at, when you log on, you'll see that near the top of your feed so that you'll be able to engage with it as it's actually happening. So live video, kind of a hot, hot topic at both of these companies. What do you make of all this, Aaron? Well, I'm still not totally bought in on the live video thing. Um, and I think the main, I mean, the, the main problem with it is production value. I mean, doing something live that actually looks good and sounds good is really crazy hard. I mean, every once in a while you have sitcoms, like 30 Rock did a live episode once when, the, when that show was still running. And there were clear quality differences between a pre-recorded, edited, you know, fully produced episode versus this live episode that they had to, you know, because there were there were compromises that had to be made in order to do it live, and so for for live video to be a compelling platform, I think it needs to it needs to have a use where the low production quality isn't a detractor, right? Right. I, I think mm -hmm. one of the ways that's the case is with celebrities connecting with fans, right? Any famous mm -hmm. people, it's a way to. I, I think people who follow famous people like really kind of crave the opportunity to do this in the moment. 
And there's some celebrities lately that have been doing that pretty well, like on Periscope. I know Jim Gaffigan does it, for example, a lot as he's on tour um, doing his comedy uh, performances. He'll do, you know, Periscope sessions and 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 he keeps doing them, which I assume means that he's gotten had a good experience doing them. Um, I think the other thing that makes live live video an an, an enticing platform is the sort of quasi-news value of it in the sense that when yeah. an important event is happening, a natural disaster somewhere, you know, a riot, um, you know, basically the kind of stuff that draws people to their televisions, you know, I think, I think that has a chance to be really compelling and also really disruptive because you don't have to turn to CNN to see live what's happening, but rather really right. anybody on the scene can pull out their iPhone and become mm -hmm. the live stream that everybody's watching. And I think in that sense, um, live video has a ton of potential still. But again, in both of those cases, low production quality doesn't, doesn't distract, right? Because you feel mm -hmm. like you're getting access to something right. sort of more real. Right. It's tangible. a trade-off that's worth making, yeah. Right. No, I agree. I mean, it's interesting. I think Twitter's been interesting in terms of how it's made celebrities more accessible to us. You know, we never had celebrities' phone numbers short of kind of camping out outside their house or something like that. You, you really had no obvious way to even try to engage with a celebrity most of the time. And yet Twitter's made these people very much out there in public in a way that, in theory at least, you could engage with them. You could reply to their tweets. You could, you know, send them a tweet begging for a follow or whatever. And I know people do that. But the live video definitely kind of adds another angle to that, um, to that interactivity. And so I absolutely agree with that. I do feel like live video is a bit like smartphone photography, where... You know, when, when we first started carrying phones that had decent cameras on them, suddenly there were things that were captured that weren't before, both video and stills. And, uh, you know, that didn't always make a huge difference. But in cases of breaking news or cases where something happened where there was no sort of professional uh, news media there to cover it, suddenly you had a record of things you didn't before and it made it that much more real. And I think of, you know, the plane that landed in the Hudson River, for example, you know, in, in a previous era we wouldn't really have had any footage of that in the first few minutes after it happened and yet we immediately had this pretty blurry looking image of this plane sitting in the river uh, taken I think by the ferry operator um, and so you know you have things like that and I feel like live video is a bit like that where there are instances where suddenly this becomes really really important and especially where an event happens in a place where news media isn't present and suddenly we have a live record of what's what's unfolding as it happens and you know, the great thing about live video is it's very hard to fake. Um, you know, unlike photography and videography in general that, that have always been faked right from the beginning of the history of those two media, live video is very hard to fake because it's happening right now. And so it's this very real, very authentic sort of form of news reporting that, that I think is going to be a really interesting element of kind of crowdsourcing reporting, which has been a real struggle for a lot of the big news agencies. Uh, and Twitter can be a part of that, and it fits very well with their overall emphasis on live. So there's, there's definitely promise here, but I think it's almost all around those unexpected events, perhaps to some extent kind of an inside perspective on, on other non-newsworthy events or the kind of celebrity stuff that we were talking about. The problem is most of the rest of the time it's not that exciting. Um, and I think that's the biggest challenge that Twitter faces is that this can't be a 24-7 thing. It's going to be something that happens around specific events. Yeah, Same well, goes for Facebook, of course. And, and that makes sense why Facebook's strategy to move live video up to the top of the feed could be really powerful because people have spent a lot of time on Facebook 
And if mm-hmm. something gets pushed to the top of their feed because it's an important event happening live and Facebook can make that decision algorithmically, right? I mean, yeah. basically, the more people tuning into a live video stream, the more they could decide to promote it in mm-hmm. somebody's timeline. Um, I, I think uh, there's a lot of room for innovation to make that meaningful. Because the other problem with live video is, you know, with a lot of these events, the, there's a lot of, it, you know, it's often the case that there's a lot of sitting around for a brief moment of importance and uh and the way to make that compelling is has got to be through some sort of editing or curation right right yeah absolutely no i agree and and twitter's moments feature could be a way of doing that kind of excerpt part of a live video rather than showing the whole thing for example so that could work um yeah it feels like you know with facebook people don't go there for live stuff you know, people go there to see what's been posted in the last day or so, maybe or the last few hours since they last checked it. Twitter very much is where people, at least to some extent, go to see what's happening right now. And so with Facebook, it's going to be more incidental. You go there for some other reason and happen to see it. With Twitter, it's part of the broader picture of kind of understanding what's happening now. And so it's interesting coming at it from slightly different places, but ultimately potentially ending up in the same place. But it has a chance to be like the, you know, the news break, right? You're in the middle of your right. show or in this case, mm-hmm. the equivalent, the middle of your Twitter stream, right? right? And then all of a sudden, a live video that a mm-hmm. bunch of people are watching gets pushed to you, mm-hmm. and you're now engaged. Uh, you know, right. it's very analogous. Yeah. yeah, no, absolutely. So our third topic for the news roundup is, is mobile payments, and, and there was a report, I think it was 9 to 5 Mac, was sent a, a slide from a deck from MasterCard that was purportedly their sort of roadmap for the next few months for rolling out. Apple Pay to new countries, and there's quite a few countries where Apple Pay either doesn't exist today or whether it's an Amex exclusive uh, thing today where, where MasterCard was supposedly going to be rolling out. So that was kind of noteworthy. And then Google's also debuting this hands-free payment uh, technology where your phone stays in your pocket, you walk into a, a McDonald's or somewhere else and say, um, you know, I'd like to pay with Google, and there's a system where it recognizes you. Um, and uh, and you pay that way, and your phone stays in your pocket. So it's potentially an even more sort of frictionless form of mobile payments. Um, the Mastercard stuff, I think we take that with a pinch of salt. It's uh, not being confirmed. It was from an unverified source with no kind of history. So it makes sense that those things would be happening, and that expansion would be happening. But um, it's interesting to see Apple Pay moving forward in this way, where it seems to be about specific card issuers now and specific card networks rather than about kind of launching a big picture way in a country as the kind of US and UK launches went. You know, we've seen Amex expansion in several countries. We may now be seeing MasterCard expansion in several of the same in some other countries. This seems to be the way it's going to move forward. Um, And that's kind of interesting to me. Aaron, do you have any thoughts about the Apple Pay thing? I know that you had some thoughts about the Google hands-free thing. Well, I do about that too. Just two quick thoughts on on the Apple Pay expansion. One is that it's good to see something happening with international expansion for Apple Pay because I don't think Apple can wait around for it to become more prominent in the U.S. The, the adoption for Apple Pay seems to have a pretty slow uptake, and uh, I don't think it makes sense for Apple to sit around waiting for it to get big and hoping that that pushes the momentum of Apple Pay into other countries. Um, and the second observation is just that, it, it, again, it, it totally makes sense for, to me that it would be the card issuers that would and should be pushing Apple Pay internationally. I mean, there's there's massive amount of fraud reduction value in Apple Pay and the way the platform works. And card carriers, it seems like, should have 
a pretty big incentive to get more people using Apple Pay because it reduces the risk of fraud, which they're the ones footing the bill for. And so, you know, the idea that this was coming out of MasterCard, and again, like you said, it's a rumor, but 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 if this is MasterCard pushing this, this makes a lot more sense to me than Apple or even banks necessarily pushing it. Yeah, well, any individual bank's only going to have sort of small market share within a single country. MasterCard's one of the three big payment networks and a bigger one right. than Amex at that. So, you know, Amex is important. It has tends to have higher-end customers that may be slightly more aligned with kind of iPhone ownership, but the reality is MasterCard's a lot bigger too. So this, this increases the addressable opportunity. Um, the Google hands-free thing's interesting because the way it works is that it uses location services on your phone, including Bluetooth, low energy, and Wi-Fi um, to essentially put your picture and initials up on a terminal that's behind the counter so that when you say, I'd like to pay with Google, they see who's in the store right now who has this technology enabled, and they uh, ask you your initials, and then you, you confirm that it's you, and that's how the payment takes place. So it's very clever, um, but Aaron, I know that you, you were... Uh, <laughs> uh, skeptical, should we say, about this? It's the, the 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 classic obtuse perspective out of Google on privacy, and I realize this is all opt in. I mean, they wouldn't be forcing this on anybody, but it's just it's Google's weird way of being tone deaf about privacy, expecting that people would automatically be comfortable with something like this. Uh, I mean, it seems like Google pretty regularly, in all kinds of ways, is is fighting a public campaign on getting people to loosen up about privacy. And this would be another one of those things. I mean, my very first reaction was, wait a minute, so when I walk in a store, my picture and initials are going to show up on a screen? To me, right. that's like, I don't know. I mean, not that I you know, have nefarious purposes when I go into a store that I want to kept hidden, but, but my instinct is to kind of recoil at the idea of that. And this is the same classic problem. I, th I think Google's going to have the same problem with this that they had um, uh, with... Uh, I don't know, so many other things, like the way, I mean, mm -hmm. even Google all the way back Glass to, yeah, or, Google yeah. Glass, all the way back to Gmail, really, because mm -hmm. I think a lot of people hesitated with Gmail in the early days because they knew that Google machines were reading their emails so they could better target ads. Mm -hmm. And Google just, it seems like they constantly are coming up with product ideas that require some sort of public education campaign. And this seems like mm -hmm. another one of those. Right. Well, yeah, there was a famous comment, and I can't remember whether it was Sergey or Larry, but kind of said, you know, I wish there was an island somewhere that didn't have any of these laws that we could just try all this stuff out. And that always seems to be yeah. the instinct behind a lot of this stuff. And, you know, fair enough, that's how you get some interesting experimentation. But, yeah, it does definitely make you wonder whether you really want to, and this is all opt-in, obviously, but it makes you wonder whether you're willing to give up this kind of, uh, uh, you know, this kind of thing kind of makes people queasy from time to time. Yeah. All right, well, let's move on to our question of the week. And again, as we said up front, um, we're talking about this New York case that's analogous but in different in some ways to the Apple FBI case in California. I know that we've talked about that case the last two weeks. We're taking a different tack this time around. Uh, we're focusing on this New York case that, in which there was a judgment this week from, the, from Judge Orenstein. Um, we have a ruling here that some people have kind of jumped on and, and said, you know, we think this is what it means, but we haven't seen much detailed analysis, especially legal analysis of exactly what was decided and on what basis in this case. And so the question that we're ask, answering this week and that Aaron's done the research on, uh, again, he has a law degree and, you know, has a, has a history in the law, understands these kinds of things. And so he's done the research on this this week. Uh, the question is, what's the significance of this Orenstein court order? Well, it, and so I'm going to pitch that to you as a starting point, Aaron, and we'll kind of go from there. Yeah, so I want to make just a general comment that seems to be true of a lot of high-profile court cases, is that it's often true that the outcome 
in these sorts of you know high profile cases usually turns on narrow legal issues instead of broader social policy issues that are at stake. I think a classic example of this was when the Proposition 8 case um, that ended up uh, that came out of California made it up to the Supreme Court. When that case was decided by the Supreme Court, it was actually decided on a really narrow legal issue involving standing. And, and in fact, it wasn't decided on the merits of the case, so to speak, which in, you know, in the case of Prop 8 related to, to the, you know, the social policies and concerns and, and, uh, and public debate about gay marriage. Um, I wondered if that was going to be the case here because this is another legal issue that is drawing a lot of public attention. And I was curious if the New York judge in this case had decided if the federal judge in this case had decided on narrow legal grounds, because often when that when that happens, it means the case isn't nearly as as significant or important as people would assume at first. Um, the, what I was surprised to discover is that this is not one of those narrow legal ground cases. Uh, in fact, Judge Orenstein definitely issued a judicial decision that has deep and important social significance about the power of government. Um, to compel private parties, companies, or individuals to do certain things. Um, that said, what I, it is important to point out that this case did not make a conclusion about the proper balance between privacy and security, which really is the key issue that's drawing so many people in here. In fact, this is a quote from the, court, from the judge's order. He said, how best to balance those interests, meaning privacy and security, is a matter of critical importance to our society and the need for an answer becomes more pressing daily as the tide of technological advance flows ever farther past the boundaries of what seemed possible even a few decades ago. But that debate must happen today and it must take place among legislators who are equipped to consider the technological and cultural realities of a world their predecessors could not begin to conceive. Um, and. and uh, what I love about that quote is the judge is basically saying, look, this isn't my job to decide right. the proper balance between privacy and security. So although he's acknowledging this issue, which is the issue drawing everybody's attention to what's happening between the Apple and FBI, this judge deliberately said, this isn't my choice to make. This should be the right. choice of the public through its elected representatives. Mm -hmm. Now, all that said, there is still a fundamental constitutional principle involved in this case. Um, it, and, and the judge made a decision that involved really important analysis that I think is worth discussing. Right. And it's worth mentioning, obviously, there, there was a congressional hearing this week in which Apple and others, including the, the head of the FBI, were speakers. And we're not going to cover that today. But obviously, this is a debate that's starting to happen among lawmakers as well. But let's focus on this case for today. Um, We've heard a lot about the All Writs Act specifically and, right. and how old it is and how applicable it may or may not be. So, you know, that's clearly one of the laws that are at stake here, but, but is that the only one? It's not, but we'll start with it because it was the central law at stake. So, okay. The all, in fact, it's important to point out that the All Writs Act shouldn't ever be considered in a vacuum, legally speaking. In fact, the way it was written is that it has to be considered in context of other laws, and that ended up being the key issue in this case. So the All Writs Act was written in, in 1789, I mean, essentially right after the Constitution um, was, was drafted and, and enacted by Congress. Um, the, the All Writs Act was designed to be a way for federal courts to issue legal orders, making other parties do various things. I mean, it's just, it's, it's the fundamental federal law that gives federal courts the power to force somebody to do something. Um, people hear that date, the 1789 date, and wonder how such an old law can still be useful today. 
Um, and the answer is because it's a simple law. I mean, it's not that complicated. In fact, over history, it's only been meaningfully amended twice. And the last meaningful amendment was a century ago. And it's because the, the concept is a really basic one that doesn't really change with time. The, the idea is should courts have certain powers to compel people to do things in a way that helps the court further its purpose? And, you know, however that was written, you know, two or three centuries ago shouldn't necessarily change now. So um, there are three requirements built into the way the, the All Writs Act is written. For so the, the basic idea of the All Writs Act is kind of the, that law enforcement should be able to achieve ends that they need to achieve that aren't perhaps directly supported by any specific law but kind of consistent with the laws that exist. Is that the idea? Right. It, it, yeah, exactly. And when you say law enforcement, in that sense, we would include the court because the court is, is right. the one who would enforce the request of law enforcement to make something happen. Yeah. And it actually technically doesn't even require law enforcement. This could be this includes the power of a federal court. If there were ever a civil case involved, for example, um, the court could compel people and law enforcement wouldn't be involved at all. Right. Um, there are three requirements for the All Writs Act to be effective. One is that whatever's being asked has to actually aid the court in its jurisdiction. So it has to be whatever the court is is over in its jurisdiction. This has to help them in that regard. It has to be, quote, necessary and appropriate to provide such aid. So whatever order the court is issuing has to be necessary and appropriate to furthering its purpose. It, it's interesting. In, in those first two elements, the court said the FBI is right. Like this is aiding us in our jurisdiction. This request is aiding us in the, our jurisdiction and it's necessary and appropriate to providing that aid. So those two first elements are not really at, at stake here. The third one is the one that's most at stake because the All Rights Act requires that these orders be, quote, agreeable to the usages and principles of the law. That is to say that the order has to, has to work in a way that complies with the rest of federal law. Now, right. there was there are three other elements that we'll mention sort of toward the end um, because there was a Supreme Court decision um, that added three more factors to consider. Um, it depends on how close the party that's getting the order is to the matter at hand. Um, the reasonableness of the burden being imposed has to be something for a court to consider if they're issuing an order. And the necessity of the order to get the aid the court needs, is, which is kind of a strange added element because it's essentially replicating number two from the text of the All Rights Act itself. So that third one we can kind of throw out. But the reasonableness of the burden is one that's going to show up again before we're done talking about it. So put taking all this and putting it another way, sort of more in layman's terms, the key question here is how far can the government go in ordering you to do something in a court case? Um, and, and here the court is focusing on this issue of agreeableness with the usages and principles of law, meaning can, is, this, is this order from the FBI to get Apple to help unlock this iPhone, is it agreeable with federal law as it stands today? So what did the uh, judge conclude about that? So is, is, was the request agreeable with the law in this case? Uh, no, that's why Apple won. And <laughs> okay. in fact, it was, end of episode. All yeah, right. which is great <laughs> if you're Apple. So um, the primary reason is because, actually, interestingly, because of another law. So another law passed by Congress in 1994 called the Communication Assistance for Law Enforcement Act, which the acronym is CALIA. So that's what we'll refer to it as from now on. Um, and to kind of lay groundwork, the, the, the way the All Rights Act fits into federal law is based on this idea that there are a lot of laws that define what a court can or can't order a person to do. 
For example, there's a law that says the court can't order me to testify against myself. That comes out of the Constitution. But it can't order other people to testify against me even if they don't want to. And so we already have a bunch of laws, constitutional, statutory, even regulatory, that basically lay out the groundwork of what the federal government can't, what federal courts can or can't compel people to do. But we don't have laws defining all of the different circumstances in which this court order might happen, right? We don't have, I mean, we don't have, uh, we don't have a specific law for every potential court order that a federal judge might issue. And so the All Writs Act is written as a gap filler, it, it basically saying, look, if there's not already a law written about the order that the court needs, as long as the All Writs Act request complies or is agreeable to all the other federal laws that exist, then that's all you need for your request if you're the FBI, is, is, is the idea is that as long as the All Writs Act gives you the authority you need to request a federal court order, um, because even if there's not a specific law written for that specific kind of order, this is where the All Writs Act is supposed to step in and fill in the gaps. So, so the question is, okay, so it has to be agreeable to what's called the usages and principles of the law. The FBI basically argued that unless there was a specific law prohibiting the court order, then whatever the FBI might request the court to do, the court should be allowed to do. Apple disagreed with this, saying that, look, this gives courts more power than they deserve. Just because Congress is silent on an issue doesn't mean the court gets to do what it wants. And, and, and the court actually agreed with Apple's argument based on this idea. So pretend that Congress considered a law that gave the court some sort of power in issuing court orders. So let's pretend that Congress considered a law saying that Apple has to unlock iPhones. And it debated this law, and it thoroughly considered it, and then decided not to enact that law, to say, you know what? We don't think government should have this power, so we're not going to pass this law. Well, if you take the FBI perspective on this, then it doesn't matter that Congress turned down the law. Because the FBI would say, okay, court, Congress doesn't have anything to say about this because they didn't, they, they didn't say didn't anything in legislation one process. way or the other, right? right. Mm-hmm. And because they didn't say anything about this, the All Rights Act fills the gap. And so the court can do it anyway. Now, that's a hypothetical, but here's the thing. The exact situation like this happened with Calia, the other law. That law created certain requirements for companies to assist law enforcement in gathering evidence from electronic communications. It was written recognizing the fact that more and more communications are happening electronically. There are opportunities for those communications to be encrypted, deleted, whatever. And it basically created a scenario in which, under certain circumstances, private companies have to help the FBI or, or government get access to the information it needs, uh, subject to a court order. But here's the thing. That law, as written, mostly doesn't actually apply to Apple and its business. In fact, Apple and the FBI both agree that Calia and the rules about it don't apply to Apple. But that was the trick. Because Calia didn't apply to Apple, um, FBI's position was, well, the All Writs Act should fill in the gap. Um, the judge in this case said, no, 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 hold on. If you're saying that when Congress considers and decides not to act, then the All Writs Act automatically fills that gap, then this is essentially, and the judge was not passive at all in this argument. The judge essentially said, this is a massive unconstitutional overreach. Or in other words, not agreeable with the law. Right. So why did he say it was an overreach? What was what was it about what the FBI was arguing that made it an overreach? Well, it it basically says that 
whenever Congress doesn't speak on the power of courts to compel people to do one thing or another, then the court can come up with its own power to do it. Right. In fact, it even means that Congress could repeal a law, giving the court's power to issue some sort of order. And as long as that law has been repealed, therefore it's no longer on the books, then the FBI position says that the AWA, the All Rights Act, could fill in the gap to restore that power that Congress had deleted. Mm-hmm. And it's it's it, it interprets the agreeableness to the usages and principles of the law in a way that breaches the, the balance of powers set out in the right, Constitution. Right, it shifts a huge amount of power from the legislature to the courts. Exactly. Right. Federal courts would have... Federal courts are supposed to limit themselves to the Constitution and the laws that Congress writes. Mm -hmm. And the FBI interpretation of the All Rights Act basically gives the law-writing power in issuing orders entirely to the courts. In fact, Judge Orenstein was emphatic in the way he described what a bad idea this is. So here's another great quote from the case. If, for example, the president sent to Congress a bill explicitly authorizing a court to issue the kind of order the government seeks here, And if every single member of the House and Senate were to vote against the enactment of such a law, citing the kinds of data security and personal privacy concerns that Apple now embraces, the government would nevertheless describe the order sought here as permissible because Congress had merely rejected the bill. However emphatically and however clear there's reasons for doing so, rather than affirmatively passing legislation to prohibit the executive branch's proposal, yet in such circumstances it would be absurd to posit that the authority of the gov- that the authority of the government saw was anything other than obnoxious to the law. <laughs> so, uh, calling the FBI position absurd and obnoxious clearly is showing a, a pretty strong uh, position against the FBI's argument. Right, right. So we've it, sorry, Karen. In fact, just one other thing to mention. He even noted how absurd the argument is in light of the fact that the All Writs Act was written by the same congressional members that wrote the Constitution itself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, basically, you're saying why would they write the law? Right. Put all these limits the on government power and then open created. the door back up again. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And in fact, he even went further and chided the FBI for trying to make an end run around Congress <laughs> by, through their interpretation of the All Writs Act. He noted that they considered seeking leg- legislation from Congress and decided against it. Here's another great quote. He says, it's also clear that the government has made the considered decision that it is better off securing such crypto legislative authority from the courts in proceedings that had always been at the time it filed the application shielded from public scrutiny, rather than taking the chance that open legislative debate might produce a result less to its liking. Indeed, on the very same day that the government filed the application in this case, it made a public announcement that after months of discussion about the need to update Calia to provide the kind of authority it seeks here, it would not seek such legislation. He basically said the FBI wanted to get a secret court order giving them what they thought they couldn't get from Congress with the public watching. Right, because if they could secretly go through the courts mm-hmm. to get this power... You don't have to go have through all the debate and scrutiny it. and all the rest of it. it. Yeah, Exactly, and so that constitutional issue was enough to cut off the FBI request. So Apple winning that issue was a really huge deal. Right. So is that, was that it? Was that kind of the basis for the judge's decision, or was there more beyond the All Writs Act? It was sufficient, but there were a few other observations, three especially interesting ones I'll just go through quickly. Um, the first is that the judge said, we cannot accuse Apple of assisting criminals just for selling phones with features that it sells to millions of law-abiding citizens, which is a really important point to make. This Because the, there is a public argument going on that Apple is assisting terrorists and criminals But the judge said, look, Apple is selling a product it sells to millions of law-abiding people. And just because criminals happen to take advantage of those features doesn't mean Apple is somehow assisting these crimes. 
Um, he also said that the FBI has accused Apple of thwarting their investigation by not helping, but the judge made clear, he said, look, legally speaking, declining to assist the FBI is not the same as thwarting them. Now, you might make a moral, ethical case that that's the same, but the judge said, legally speaking, Apple isn't thwarting anything. They're just choosing not to help. Right. Um, and then finally, and I think this is this would have been enough to 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 cause problems for the FBI, even if the constitutional issue previously mentioned wasn't at stake. And it has to do with the reasonableness of the burden. And you remember I said earlier that the Supreme Court came up with a few additional factors that courts have to just consider with an All Writs Act order. And one of those extra factors they're supposed to consider is the reasonableness of the burden. And the judge really grabbed onto that and said, look, this is, he, he essentially said, this is an unreasonable burden to ask Apple to subvert its own business by unlocking phones sold as being secure, right? I mean, if you're, if you're, in the, if you're Apple, you are selling phones to pe people, and part of the basis for selling them is saying, if you buy our phone and use it, your information will be secured. I mean, that's what Touch ID and, and all the other security features are all about, is that you can trust your information being safe on this phone. And to tell, for the government to then say, hey, Apple, you have to help us unlock this and many other phones. And the judge made a point of saying this isn't about one phone. This is clearly about multiple phones. Right. For, the, for, the, for the FBI to say that that's not a burden um, it, it didn't work with him because he was essentially saying you're asking Apple to undermine his business. Right. You're asking Apple to undermine not just the security of these 12 or so phones that are that are subject to court requests right now, but but you're asking Apple to undermine the you know the millions of iPhones that it sells. Mm -hmm. in, in fact, the the judge was actually really frustrated with the fact that the FBI never came up with a good limitation on how far the All Writs Act should go. I mean, if you accept the FBI's interpretation of what the All Writs Act means, it's entirely open ended. Right, and the and the judge pushed them on that, mm -hmm. and he said, "How far?" Can we take your reasoning? Right. Like, where is right. the limit? If if this isn't the limit, where is the limit? Mm -hmm. And the the FBI did a really bad job of arguing that apparently because the judge wasn't at all satisfied. In fact, he said this quote: uh, "Nothing in the government's arguments suggests any principled limit on how far a court may go in requiring a person or company to violate it, it, the most deeply rooted values to provide assistance to to the government that the court deems necessary." And so he was frustrated because he said, look, if you're going to give me an expansive definition of the All Writs Act, you can't give me an argument that makes it unlimited. And that was one of the big frustrations. He said, look, it's not unlimited only in giving courts power to write their own, you know, their own authority, but you're also interpreting this in such a way that there is essentially no existence of an unreasonable burden, right. that anything the government might ask a court to do would be reasonable. Mm -hmm. And the judge wasn't at all happy with that. So I think that would have sunk them alone, mm -hmm. but, but, the, but the agreeableness issue with the law and how it, it, it upsets the balance of powers, that was enough on its own as well to, to keep the FBI from getting what it wanted. Right, right. Um, so we've talked. Oh, and sorry, just have to jump in. There's one interesting issue that was not discussed, mm. um, and it's this issue of whether or not forcing Apple to write code, right, to help unlock these phones, is a First Amendment violation of free speech. Because the way the First Amendment works is you can't infringe on somebody's free speech, but also it's been interpreted to mean that you can't force somebody to speak in a way that's unconstitutional. And Apple right now in California is arguing that forcing them to write code is violating their First Amendment right 
of free speech. Because it's Because it's not speech. free if somebody's making right. you do it, right? Yeah. And and the court didn't even address that issue. Right. That wasn't even. And I think it was because Apple didn't raise it. Right. I think it's an issue that they've risen. They've brought up with the federal court in California. Mm-hmm. So we'll see how that argument plays out. And there have been Supreme Court decisions that seem to indicate that code counts as speech. Yeah. Okay. So so you just mentioned you know there's a California case there's a, this New York case, you know there's been a lot of discussion in the context of the California case about precedent and how much would the set of precedent. How important is this New York case in relation to the, the, the California case that we've been mostly talking about? Yeah, so it's an important case because it's persuasive, but it's not mandatory, at least not in California. So the way the federal court system works is you have federal district courts. So like this New York case was decided in the Eastern District of New York. Um, and any judicial decisions at that level are mandatory within that district. So this, this new decision by this judge in, Cal- in, in New York is a mandatory decision for the Eastern District of New York, the federal district court there. Um, what that means is it is not mandatory in this California federal district court. And I can't remember which district in California this is in, but, but the idea is that this, this court order um, from New York doesn't have mandatory effect in California. Now, if it were be to be a, if it was appealed like to the next step up, which is a circuit level, then a circuit level decision is enforceable on everybody in that circuit. But you could have different circuits that come to different conclusions, on you know similar cases, and then if it goes all the way up to the Supreme Court, then it's mandatory for all federal courts. Um, so right now it is just a persuasive decision. But that said, the reasoning was pretty compelling, and after reading through the case, I would have a hard time imagining the California judge coming up with an alternative argument that comes out the other direction. Um, If it does stick in other courts, if this first case in in New York, if this reasoning sticks in other courts, it basically dismantles the FBI's use of the All Writs Act to compel Apple to unlock iPhones. It means that there is no legal basis for the FBI to ask Apple to do this. And then the FBI has to get a law from Congress. There's going to be no other way to do it. And that's what the judge said had to happen. I mean, you know, taking us back to the beginning of this conversation, the judge was saying, look, you know, the FBI should not be using the courts to decide an important public policy issue like this. Instead, it should be going to Congress. It should be debated openly. And the people through Congress should be making this choice, not a judge or the FBI. And that fundamentally has been the argument Apple's been making, too. And so in that regard, it's a pretty big win for Apple. I mean, it's a big win because it limits the All Writs Act. It's a big civil rights win in many ways because keeping the All Writs Act from being, you know, you know, all expansive protects all of us. Um, but uh, it also, the judge in multiple moments, you know, essentially made Apple's case for them. And I guarantee you, the, the, the attorneys representing Apple in California have already sent a copy of this, this judicial decision to the judge in California. Right. And they've incorporated it into their argument. And so um, this is going to be really persuasive. And so I, it's hard to say how that will come down. I mean, you, you know, sometimes you think a legal issue is going to be a lock for a judge and they just come out completely differently than you expect. And I don't right. know a lot about the federal judge in California deciding this case. But uh, this is definitely a big win for Apple, which is not often the case when these sorts of things are decided. But, but this, was, this was a really big win for Apple that I think could have a pretty powerful influence, if, if not in California, at least in, in the public sphere. Great. Well, thank you, Aaron. That was great. It's always useful to be able to draw on your legal expertise with this stuff. So thanks for talking us through that. And uh, 
we'll we'll probably put a link, I think, to the judge's order in the show notes so that people can go and read it for themselves as well if they're interested okay. in that. And I would recommend that this judge actually is a pretty good writer. I mean, I, I think mostly people could, or non-lawyers, I should say, could could read this and 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 everything would be pretty crystallized. Right. I think I, I'm hoping that was at least in part because he knew that this would get a lot of public scrutiny. But he did a great job as mm. well written. Yeah. Great. Okay. Well, we'll definitely point to that. Um, so our last topic is these new uh, video services that AT&T, I think the best word is pre-announced this week because they won't actually launch until the fourth quarter. So talking about at least seven months from now. Um, but AT&T announced a series of uh, three new video services they intend to launch towards the end of this year under the DirecTV brand, which is kind of their entertainment brand now, having acquired the DirecTV business last year. Um, the three tiers are, in brief, DirecTV Now, which is sort of a pay TV replacement with linear and video-on-demand components. Um, it will offer more flexible bundles and smaller bundles than the traditional pay TV services generally have, but it will be entirely over the top, as it were. So it will run over any broadband connection. It will run over mobile and, and wireline broadband connections. will run in apps rather than through a sort of dedicated box in the home. So this will be an alternative to the traditional pay TV services. We don't know pricing for any of these tiers, so, so we'll come back to that later. But second tier is DirecTV Mobile. And this is a smartphone-only version. This will be stripped down. It won't be anywhere near as much content. It will probably cost a lot less as well. Um, it will be smartphone-only, so you'll be able to use it on a single smartphone. If you're an AT&T customer, you'll probably be able to add it to your AT&T bill. If you're not, you'll just be able to buy it directly through AT&T, and, and, but still use it on other wireless carriers in the US. And then the third tier is um, essentially sort of a, an ad-supported free tier. Um, and this basically offers you a certain amount of mostly sort of mobile first, digital first, think kind of YouTube style content, um, maybe the odd episode here and there of premium content, but certainly not whole seasons of premium content. So this is a bit like what you'd get on Hulu.com if you were not a subscriber. So a few free things, but nothing of, of any huge value and probably best seen as kind of marketing for the other two tiers. So that's kind of what AT&T's announced. No pricing, as I mentioned. No specifics on which channels will be included or excluded or anything like that, but all planned to launch at the end of the year, all available on any kind of carrier, on any broadband connection, um, and, and delivered through apps rather than through dedicated boxes. So, Aaron, what was kind of your original take on all of this? Well, I was disappointed there weren't more details, which sort of made the announcement uh, feel really premature. Um, I, I, I know you had a perspective on why they would do that now, um, but it, to me, it just seemed strangely early. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I got briefed about this a couple of hours before they made the announcement under embargo. And um, I asked that question, like, why are you announcing this seven plus months ahead of when it's actually going to be available? And they didn't give a great answer. But from other things that we talked about during that conversation and the reporting that I've seen, it seems a big part of the issue is they're in the process of trying to sign deals with the content owners right now. Um, you know, as we've seen from Apple, which we've talked about a couple of times, the more time you spend discussing these things with content owners, the more chance there is that something leaks out. And AT&T's promised to do something in this space for a while now, wasn't ready to kind of announce all the details yet, but as it goes through those negotiations, there's more and more chance something leaks. And so I think they were just saying, here, this is what we're going to be working on over the next few months. Uh, we wanted to give you a preview of it. We've been promising you something here. You know, here it is in, in broad outlines. The reason we don't have any details is they haven't signed the deals yet. And it's possible they won't get some of the content owners on board. 
uh, by the time they want to launch, and so some channels will be missing. Obviously, exactly which content is included in turn determines what the pricing will be and so on. So there are reasons for not giving the specifics this far out, uh, and a lot of them have to do with not having signed the contracts yet. Um, the downside, of course, to announcing this far out is you give competitors a big lead time to work on whatever they might want to announce in the meantime. Um, you uh, risk that you know, you've made this bold statement that we're going to have something that looks a lot like a pay TV service, and yet you then fail to get some key content partners on board, and so you can't deliver what you've promised you'll deliver. So there are clearly some downsides to all of this, but I think that's why they made the announcement this far ahead of time. Um, to my mind, the, the DirecTV Now, the kind of the top tier of these three, is the most compelling because it's the first time that we'll see a sort of broadly available true kind of pay TV replacement. You've had Sling out there, you've had Sony View out there. Sony View is utterly marginal in the US. Sling is a bit more mainstream. They have a few hundred subscribers, a few hundred thousand subscribers at this point, about 600,000 was the most recent estimate. But they're missing most of the broadcast channels. They've just barely added ABC. They don't have the others. They're missing a lot of other content as well. And the apps are poor. There's no app on Apple TV, although one briefly surfaced earlier today, so it seems to be coming soon. Um, you know, lots of issues around that. Um, but, you know, this would be the first, you know, if it works, and again, that's the big caveat here, if it works, the first really mainstream, broadly available, over-the-top pay TV service. Uh, and that, in and of itself, I think is pretty significant. Um, the mobile version feels a lot less compelling because, you know, it feels like mobile this and mobile that is so kind of five years ago. You know, we had a lot of mobile music services back in the day, a lot of mobile TV services back in the day that were standalone services. These days, what we buy is TV services or video services or music services without the kind of mobile qualifier. You know, you want to be able to buy a service and know it'll be available on whatever device you choose to use. And so I worry that with the exception of people who are use only exclusively use a smartphone for everything that they consume um, this is going to be frustrating because you're going to want to get home and switch from your mobile phone that you're watching on the train to you know the tv or at the very least an ipad or a laptop or something and you won't be able to do that um, part of that i think is deliberate because at&t would like to upsell you to the higher tier if that's the case uh, and there's definitely a structure here that's designed to move you from the base tier to the middle tier to the higher tier over time um, but I, I think that's the kind of that feels like the big misstep here. Well, it, the thing that I think is really interesting is that it's the dish, um, sorry, it's the satellite providers that are pushing the innovations in this regard. I, I mean, you were talking about how it has to be, you know, it has to be one of these, you know, um, it has to be one of these companies, whether it's a, a satellite provider or a cable company that's probably going to be most successful in, pu in pushing out an over-the-top version of this, a digital-only version of this. To me, it makes a lot of sense that it's the satellite companies. They've always been more innovative in figuring out how to get their service to customers. I think they're the ones who pioneered the, you know, the, the discounted two-year packages, um, and uh, they definitely pushed harder on the DVR space in the early days than the cable companies did. Also, I think the problem that cable companies have, and this is true for Comcast and Time Warner, and I, I think the problem that they have is that um, they, you know, they face a far greater risk of cannibalization here. I mean, they, they're selling TV, internet, and phone to people, whereas, you know, Dish and DirecTV are basically just selling TV. And to now have... Um, to, to now have these these over-the-top, you know, pay TV um, packages. I think the problem it creates for uh, for the cable companies is they're, you know, they're the ones providing all the infrastructure. 
and you know the but they're getting undercut on price when it comes to the TV offerings and I you know I don't know where they go from here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's it's going to be interesting to watch. I mean, Comcast and, and Time Warner Cable have trials in one or two markets where they're looking at doing kind of this sort of over the top stuff with their pay TV offerings, but they are just trials. They're very limited to specific markets, and they don't seem to have made a big commitment to them yet. The big downside for the cable companies is they make a huge amount of money and specifically profit from renting you cable modems and set-top boxes and stuff, and they've been very reluctant to sacrifice that. And so, you know, they they have been reluctant to do some of this stuff for some of those reasons. Uh, there's also a loss of control over the UI, which arguably is one of the few unique things, even if it's not very good for most of the cable companies, but... You know, the content itself is utterly undifferentiated. You know, getting TNT on Comcast is exactly the same from getting TNT on DirecTV at this point. So it's really just the user interface around all of that where they get to differentiate. So the loss of control over that is another thing that they fear. Um, but, you know, they've been playing around with some of this stuff too. Uh, the other thing that's interesting is kind of why is AT&T doing this? The big reasons, obviously, they've acquired DirecTV. They have that brand. They have the content relationships and so on that they didn't quite have in the same way before, and they can leverage those to do something like this. It's partly defensive. So, you know, I do a lot of research on cord cutting, and um, it's definitely happening. But the other thing that's happening is cord shaving, where people try to migrate down to smaller bundles. And if a DirecTV doesn't have a smaller bundle because the economics of putting a satellite dish on your house don't really work if you're only spending $25 a month, uh, then they lose you as a customer. And so if they have something like this that they can migrate you to, at least they keep you as a customer, albeit at a lower spend, uh, they also want to expand the addressable market. So they want to get people that have decided that pay TV isn't for them and convince them that this new version of it may be for them, either you know because they don't have to deal with the infrastructure hassles or because they get to choose a smaller bundle than they might have otherwise been forced into. The big worry, of course, is cannibalization. So does this eat into DirecTV or AT&T's base of TV customers. Um, and there's a risk of that. The, de- the, uh, the counter argument from, from them would be this isn't a whole home solution. It's going to be limited to probably one or two streams simultaneously. So you've got three people watching TV in different rooms in the house. It isn't going to work for you. It's also not going to have DVR and the ability to skip commercials and all that kind of thing. It will have a big VOD library. So that meets some of the same needs, but you'll still have to sit through commercials and so on for that stuff. So. There are some counter arguments, but there is a worry that this, you know, starts to cannibalize some of their base as well. It'll be interesting to see how much this softens the ground for Apple versus giving them, you know, more of a, a of an upstream battle. Um, because you know, if this service ends up ends up bringing in a lot of customers, it makes Apple have a harder time justifying that doing their own thing. But at the same time, you know, at least I hope that it softens the ground, not just for Apple, but for a lot of other companies to negotiate these content deals in such a way that it becomes easier for people to provide TV packages that are, you know, delivered over the Internet. Yeah, there's been some interesting, um, there was an article in Wall Street Journal this week talking about how the FCC was looking into whether cable companies and other pay TV providers were, were preventing content owners from kind of complying with the kind of stuff that Apple wants to do. So it'd be interesting if some of these new content relationships um, will be freeing some of this stuff up to your point. So it'd be interesting to watch that. Okay, well, let's wrap up our episode with our weekly pick. This time around, it's my turn. Um, And I've been recommending a lot of movies lately, but uh, perhaps I'm just really enjoying going to the movies again after a few months of not going to the movies with the new baby in the house. So uh, last night we saw um, a movie that just came out this past week, which was Eddie the Eagle. Um, And if you're not familiar with the movie or the guy uh, who's the focus of the movie, um, it's probably because you're not a Brit, um, which I am. 
so Eddie the Eagle was this great character who emerged in the late 80s. He was a, a, a Brit who decided to become a ski jumper and compete in the Winter Olympics. And for context, the Brits have always been terrible in the Winter Olympics, mostly because we don't have any snow. Um, and so, you know, he really was right from the beginning, sort of an unlikely figure, but he was this crazy guy who decided to compete as a ski jumper in the winter Olympics. And, uh, this movie is sort of a biopic about him and how, how that went essentially. And, you know, this is not one of these stories where the underdog sort of wins at the end. You know, this is definitely not that story, but it's about how a guy who really has no chance of succeeding goes for it anyway and what happens in the process. And so it's really fun, um, main actor is a guy called Taron Egerton who I hadn't seen anything before the sort of secondary character is Hugh Jackman who obviously will be familiar to most people but a uh, really fun movie a couple of uh, slightly adult moments nothing too over the top but uh, definitely don't take your younger kids to it but uh, just came out this week really fun movie um, fairly British sense of humor in a lot of it um, which you may or may not enjoy if you're not from the UK but um, I'd recommend it a really fun movie to see pretty entertaining uh, definitely sort of feel good ending at the end of it um, and based on a true story to boot. So we'll put a link to, to that on the uh, show notes as well, along with a lot of the other things that we've been talking about. So thanks for being with us again. We're a little longer than usual this week, but hopefully you enjoyed the discussion, especially the, the question of the week part in the middle where we went into quite a bit of detail around some of these legal issues that we haven't seen covered well elsewhere. Uh, we always appreciate your feedback, so please provide it to us via Twitter on the, the website or otherwise. And we look forward to being with you again next week. Thanks. <laughs>